Welcome to the latest episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. This podcast represents a special collaboration with the East Trauma Cast. We were all at the recent Pediatric Trauma Society meeting in San Diego and decided to work together in order to highlight the aspects of the meeting. What follows is their podcast in its entirety, with an additional interview discussing the topic of child abuse. If you like what you hear, we definitely recommend checking out some of their other work. Until then, remember, knowledge should be free. This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Florence Mapman, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hi everybody, it's Dave Morris. Just a quick note about this edition of the Trauma Cast. This is another of the highlights from recent meetings series that we've been doing recently. Uh, this episode will be about the Pediatric Trauma Society meeting, which was held last fall. Dr. Ian Mitchell was my main collaborator with this who organized the interviews. We've spliced them all together for your listening pleasure. Hope you enjoy and hope you learn something about pediatric trauma. Hi, this is Ian Mitchell from Children's Hospital San Antonio. I'm here at the PTS meeting in San Diego, and I'm talking to Britt Christmas, the president of EAST, and we're talking about his recent discussion of uh, thrombolytics, TEG, and uh, thromboelastography in children and adults. Hi, Dr. Christmas. Hi, Ian. Uh, first, we'd like to thank the PTS for uh, having us at the meeting. And uh, today, um, um, East was here to discuss some of some of the guidelines and things that we use within our medical centers in the adult population that are beginning to translate into the pediatric population. Uh, I, I spoke about viscoelastic uh, assay resuscitation to include uh, TAG and Rotem and how this can, can help us better cater our resuscitation strategies in, in not only adult patients, but pediatric uh, patients as well. We know this is kind of kind of growing uh, within the, the pediatric world as it's, it's also spread throughout the adult world. The other thing to consider is the um, controversies, controversies associated with TXA. We know that um, mortality benefits were initially showed through the, the crash study and the PEDTRAX study, but a lot of these were penetrating injuries and we haven't necessarily seen all of the results translate into the civilian population. So um, it's an ongoing controversy that I think several adult and pediatric medical centers are going to have to to sort out over the next uh, several years. So um, do you think that uh, East, are there, or rather, are there resources that you could recommend to members who may not be as familiar with how to interpret or understand TEG? Uh, are there resources that you might be able to direct them to or suggest uh, where people could find good, probably, information for the person who's already practicing on how to read and how to understand these devices? Yeah, I think um, that you can you can find several several areas, especially online and and help cards, if you will. 
that will show you numbers associated with the tag-based resuscitation. I think one of the more important things for us as clinicians realizing that in the world of trauma we don't have the luxury of time is to begin to look at different tag tracings and what what it looks like which will tell me in a quicker time frame of what I need to give whether it be FFP cryoprecipitate or or platelets um, so I, I think that is the thing for us is as much as it is about knowing the numbers it's about knowing the visuals so that we can make those decisions in real time and a lot of um, in a lot of instances be able to cater our resuscitation in the first first five to ten minutes excellent for those resources, plus we'll plan on having some of your slides up on the PTS website. And uh, the other thing would be, I understand that at East uh, this year in Orlando that we'll be having a pediatric session, and I hope your members will be interested. Yes, uh, we, we will we'll definitely welcome the, the collaboration and, and look forward to, to the, the session. Um, and as, as adult trauma surgeons, uh, a lot of us also care for pediatric uh, patients as well. So our membership is definitely looking forward to any information we can get regarding pediatric trauma. Great. Thank you. Hey, this is Alexander Gibbons from Akron Children's Hospital. I'm here at the 6th Annual Pediatric Trauma Society meeting in sunny San Diego. And I'm here with Dr. Adam Vogel from Texas Children's Hospital. He's an associate professor of surgery uh, for, and pediatrics at Baylor. Um, and he hosted a session on coagulopathy, massive transfusion, and hemostatic resuscitation in pediatric trauma, who, why, where, when, and how. Dr. Vogel, thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. This is fun. Um, so just kind of a brief overview, um, what does the adult trauma surgeon or adult emergency, uh, emergency medicine physician, what are some of the key takeaways from your session that they should know? So, so I think just to, to, to orient the, the adult trauma surgeon or the adult general surgeon that takes care of critically injured children is that the basic principles and the, the foundational principles that apply to taking care of adults really do make sense and are meaningful and probably the, the appropriate way to, to take care of, the, of critically ill children. So as it specifically relates to massive transfusion and hemostatic resuscitation, there's a, there's a, a wealth of, uh, of information studies in the adult world and there's a lot less in children. However, what we've been finding from almost every category that we can talk about is that the pediatric trends although the quality of research is not as good, is tending to follow the adult trends. So if you're stuck in the situation and you're not quite sure what to do, think back to what you would normally do to take care of critically ill patients and go with those instincts. So for instance, if you were talking about, say, you know, when to activate a massive transfusion or what is a massive transfusion. So in children, through different research efforts, massive transfusions have been defined as 40 mils per kilo of any blood product over 24 hours. Well, when you're in the trauma bay, that's not particularly relevant because you're just you're, you're just taking care of a hypotensive, hemorrhaging, bleeding child, and you're going to give that child what they need. So we have found that in those situations, activating a massive transfusion protocol probably has benefit. We haven't found benefit in mortality, but it certainly gets the blood products in the right ratios to the patients in the most timely fashion. So if you're thinking about activating an MTP, then it's probably a good idea to activate the MTP. When we think about the, the composition of what an MTP should, you know, what, what the product ratios that should be delivered, the balanced resuscitation uh, concept that 
bears out in the adult data really seems to be the trend, uh, the right way to proceed in children. So if you're giving a red cell, then you should probably follow that up with a, with a plasma. Um, and after you've given four to six, if it's say it's a teenager adolescent, you've given four to six units of red cells and plasma, then you're probably due for a uh, apheresis unit of platelets. So if you stick to those ratios, then, then you will likely you're proceeding down the path of the best type of hemostatic resuscitation that we know at the moment. Um, clearly, children are not just little adults, and a three-year-old is going to be different than a 15-year-old. So having that resuscitation, resuscitation weight-based, as you would for any child, um, would be important. So, you know, 10 per ki- 10. 10 mils, 20 mils per kilo of blood, followed by 20 mils of plasma for that child, you know, keeping those ratios similar but weight-basing them. Great. Um, Also, one of the points of discussion during the panel was uh, emphasizing difference in hemodynamics for children um, compared to adults. Can you speak a little bit about that and how uh, sometimes children seem to be under-resuscitated because of not... uh, recognizing shock earlier? Sure. I think one, one of the advantages of taking care of children, for the most part, uh, you know, when they come in, they're, they're, they're previously healthy. And so the general physiology of a child is somewhat different than the sort of older adult that one would take care of is in that they have incredible reserve. So a child will respond to hypovolemic shock and trauma, you know, hemorrhagic shock until proven otherwise, by having an increase in their heart rate. Uh, blood pressure is going to be the last, is going to be one of the last physiologic variables to decline. You're going to be paying more attention to say their their mental status and you know the the, the quiet child who. Um, who's just kind of sitting there and not reacting is much more concerning than the screaming, wailing, you know, yelling, trying to hit your child. Um, and so in general, you pay a little bit more attention to that tachycardia as opposed to uh, blood pressure because that'll be the last thing to fall. So you, if, if by the time you get to that point where they're in hypotensive hemorrhagic shock, they need active resuscitation right then and there. They probably needed five, needed it five minutes ago. Very good. Thank you. Um, And then finally, another kind of uh, point of debate almost uh, during the panel, Um, Dr. Barbara Gain presented uh, her work from Pittsburgh involving uh, whole blood transfusion. Um, And uh, we also talked, heard from uh, uh, blood bank specialist, uh, Dr. Denise uh, Maliki, uh, focusing more on the continued kind of component uh, resuscitation. Um, Can you give a, a kind of brief summary of some of that debate? Yeah, I think it's it's I think it's not so much as a debate as there's an evolution of how we take care of these children. Um, if you you start looking in the trauma critical care literature, there's more and more of an emphasis on on whole blood having incredible advantages both for morbidity and mortality, as well as just straight up the volume that you need to transfuse to get those good benefits in adults. Um, in children, we are way behind the curve on that. So there are some centers, Pittsburgh is one of the leading centers of this area that actually has a, 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 a protocol in place by which they administer whole blood to their patients. And Dr. Gaines has done some incredible work where she has shown that first of all, and most importantly, that it's safe. It's absolutely safe. The, uh, the, they're very, mini- very minimal to uh, profoundly safe, able to deliver whole blood in in an ER environment for the bleeding trauma patient. And what she's also found is that by giving whole blood, the the unstable patients get what they need sooner. So for instance, when it takes longer to get 20 per kilo of red cells, 20 per kilo of 
plasma, you know, 20 per kilo of platelets in that takes a lot longer to administer than just one unit or with the weight-based equivalent of whole blood. So that seems to be where the advantage is that we can at least identify right now. I think as more and more trauma programs and more and more blood banks start using whole blood more, we'll be able to get a better sense of how we can apply that technology and that transfusion resuscitation strategy for children. I think that Dr. one of the points that was very insightful for what Dr. Malachy was discussing is just the, the, the resources needed from a blood bank perspective to maintain those whole blood units and have those whole blood units administered when compared to current practice. And so I think it speaks to depending upon the resources at an institution or in the environment, um, that may be what really drives what you can do right now um, until we have more information and more data. Definitely. Thanks for that. Um, and then uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, talk about um, TAG and ROTAM in a session on coagulopathy. So I know that uh, this is starting to be very familiar in the adult world, but what can you speak of for these viscoelastic monitoring tests in the pediatric population? What are we learning? Uh, Dr. Finkelstein, uh, who's an emergency medicine and critical care doctor at Cornell, gave a really nice overview of the role of viscoelastic monitoring in how we and how we resuscitate in a kind of goal-directed hemostatic resuscitation strategy. Um, you know, what we've learned is that the, the data and the practice is robust in adults with clear evidence for improving outcomes. And as we discussed really over the last few minutes for every other aspect of resuscitation in children, we're behind in kids. And so the best evidence that we have from you know, single center, for the most part retrospective, some prospective observational studies is that it, it probably helps. It probably makes, it probably makes intuitive sense to, to gauge your resuscitative effort on what products you're gonna to administer to these sick kids based on the results of viscoelastic monitoring, whether it's a TEG or a ROTEM. Um, I think that we, it makes sense that it would be an effective strategy. We think it will be an effective strategy, um, but we don't know that it absolutely is an effective strategy. So it's uh, an area of active research and it's, uh, it's a great opportunity that we have to improve the care of the patients. Excellent. Well, there you have it. There's uh, the, uh, the updates for coagulopathy and massive transfusion in the pediatric population. Uh, Dr. Vogel, thank you again for uh, talking with us about this. My pleasure. Always a party. Hi, everyone. This is Alex Gazar, and I'm here with uh, Terry Ellsburn, who's the Pediatric Trauma Program Manager at Mayo Clinic, and Trisha Morrell, who is the Pediatric Trauma Coordinator at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital. They're both on the board of directors uh, for PTS, and they just led a session called Everything is Better in Hindsight about trauma uh, performance improve improvement programs. Uh, so what do you say were the highlights of your session? Well, the, the idea we had when we created the idea for this session was really to um, look at a case study from uh, an additional perspective. We have lots of case studies at the PTS meeting, and majority of them are really focused on clinical care. But because we're such a multidisciplinary organization, which sets us apart, I think, from other professional organizations, we really wanted to look at case studies uh, and look across the continuum. So um, people presented the cases and then really looked at how they evaluated their care through the performance improvement process and how they went on to improve their program. 
program. So uh, again, just added a little twist to the normal case study uh, to involve again all of our multidisciplinary participants. Trisha, was what was some uh, of the important things you noticed in the cases they were presenting, the challenges they faced, or how they solved them? Um, I thought it was great how both cases um, identified their their issues that were found in their cases. They went through the entire process of identifying them, um, meeting with different disciplinaries on corrective actions. And um, our first case actually highlighted that it's not just the trauma program manager's role to fix every problem, that it really is em- encompassing all multidisciplinaries to help solve the problem and improve care for your patients. Excellent. Well, thank you both. And it sounds that from the session, what we are learning is that teamwork really makes the dream work for pediatric trauma quality improvement. Thank you, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Alex Kusar and Alex Gibbons. And we are here at the Pediatric Trauma Society meeting uh, with Dr. Peter Masiakos, uh, the Director of Pediatric Trauma Services and the Co-Director for the Center for Gun Violence Prevention at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. He just had a talk titled, This is Our Lane, the Medical Community's Role in Preventing Gun Violence. Dr. Masiakos, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, um, again, thank you for a great talk and for agreeing to speak with us. Um, if for those of us, uh, for those surgeons and emergency room doctors and other listeners to the East Trauma Cast, um, just wanted to try to highlight some of the main points of your talk. And one of the main takeaways that uh, I noticed from listening to your talk was how you kind of wanted to emphasize how important it is to reframe or redefine how we address gun violence. Could you speak a little bit to that and uh, talk about your efforts to help move that along? Sure. Uh, As you know, Alex, just before my talk began, there was a school shooting in Santa Clarita, California, which claimed the lives of two kids. And the media decided that they wanted to cover uh, the event. And actually I was asked to give a statement to the local press. And what we find is that from, from time to time, the media focuses on these mass casualty events when in fact gun violence is more than that. As I suggested, there are four buckets to gun violence that uh, we focus on only two of and those are the sensational things, the homicides and the mass shootings, which make up only about 26% of the of the deaths, when in reality, suicide and homicide are the two most common buckets uh, of, harm, of deaths related to gun violence. The other thing that we talked about yesterday was that we should be framing the conversation uh, with respect to collateral damage, the non-fatal injuries, the peripheral injuries, the ripple effects that affect our patients who are lifelong patients. And these things are rarely talked about in the media. So reframing the conversation to focus on those things is is much more important, I think, going forward. Definitely agree with that. Um, And then kind of in that setting, you also talked about the importance of providers, all providers, asking patients questions about firearm and firearm ownership and storage. Um, you describe them as the five L's and you describe that program at MassGen where all incoming interns kind of had training in this. Can you describe what those five L's are and uh, kind of what you found when the interns went through this training? 
Sure. Let me put it into context first. We we uh, deal with about 40,000 deaths a year, and we don't know exactly how many non-fatal injuries there are related to gun violence every year. But if we just look at the deaths and, and, and just framing it from the perspective of, of lethality, uh, it's no different than a lot of other diseases we are dealing with, including infectious diseases and cardiovascular disease, which affect our patients. Uh, we wanted to take this, uh, um, we wanted to take this um, problem and approach it as we do the other issues of public health by making it a, 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 um, a legitimate part of our physical examination and patient interrogation. So we, we, when we talked about uh, bringing it into the clinic, uh, we wanted to make it so that people felt comfortable talking about gun violence to their patients in a non-judgmental way. And just like the first time you're talking about sexually transmitted disease or uh, parameters of health that might be sensitive topics, uh, we thought that we would uh, enable our interns to come into the to the to the hospital with an idea of simulating so that they get comfortable about asking the questions and the five L's that you talk about are um, borrowed from Dr. Garen Wintermute has been doing this work for for over a decade at UC Davis and it it um, focuses on safety um, for example if you're uh, talking to a patient and you want to approach a sensitive subject, you might preempt the conversation with a line like, because there are risks of having a gun or firearm in the home, I'm asking all of my patients about ownership and safe storage. And then we approach the five L's. Is the gun locked? Is the gun loaded? Are there little children around? Is anybody at home feeling low? And does everybody understand what the gun is and how uh, it can cause harm? Uh, the last L being learned, which is a little bit of a stretch, but uh, it makes the point. So everybody at Mass General, all of the 160 residents that came in last year uh, had an opportunity to simulate all uh, six specialties, medicine, surgery, psychiatry, pediatrics, ED, and OBGYN sat in a room and built scenarios so that they can uh, interact with patient actors. We hired a boatload of patient actors and everybody got about 60 minutes of sim time. And then we surveyed the uh, participants before and after, including the actors. So we're gathering data now to see whether or not the curriculum is effective. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. And uh, okay. I think the emphasis that all the interns, not just you know the surgery or emergency room, uh, emergency department residents got this training really speaks to how important and pervasive of an issue it is. Well, it, it's also different for everybody. You know, the way that a psychiatry resident deals with their patient is very different than what a surgical resident encounters. And and so the scenarios that were built were built specifically for the specialty. And this harkens back to the study that we did about a year ago where we looked at kids who came into our emergency rooms with homicidal or suicidal ideation. And these are kids that had a, a need for asking the question of safety. And in the context of pediatrics in the pediatric emergency department, out of 100 kids that were seen in one year, only five times was the question of safe storage or gun access asked. And in, in the case of pediatric psychiatry residents who saw these patients, 
only 65 times was it asked. So a quarter of the patients that came in with fundamentally dangerous diagnoses were, were sent home without even being asked about or documenting the issue of gun safety or access to lethal means. So that really pushed us to try to do this program, to try to build a curriculum, to establish some kind of teaching module so that the residents feel a little bit more comfortable asking the question. Yeah, really fantastic work, and we'll look forward to what the results show for how the training uh, affected outcomes. We're, we're really excited about it. So in addition to uh, promoting the conversation on access to firearms and education, uh, what other other examples that you can think of of current efforts out in the community or the legislator legislature for firearm injury prevention? So I think in, in approaching any public health issue, you have to approach it comprehensively. Uh, the successful actions uh, to impact disease or trauma um, happen to be a multi-pronged approach. Uh, successes, for example, in mitigating motor vehicle crashes happened in many ways through legislation uh, with the federal government mandating presence of seatbelts as far back as the 60s. Um, in the 70s, we saw the, the, the um, automobile industry approaching um, uh, changes in the way that they manufacture cars, including anti-lock brakes. Um, and then in the 80s, the Mothers Against Drunk Driving Group and other social socially conscious organizations, somewhat like the Moms Demand Action Group today and the March for Our Lives Group, uh, focused on drunk driving and mandatory seatbelt use. And as a result, uh, we've seen a steady decline in motor vehicle deaths and injuries over the last, over the last 65 years. Um, in, in addition to that, legislation, for example, safe driving laws, as I, as I mentioned, the junior driving laws, which now are pretty much constant in all of the states, have reduced the number of injuries to the young drivers who are just learning how to drive by about 50%. So just taking motor vehicle um, culture and how we approach driving and, and translating it to gun culture and how we approach gun safety, I think we have a lot to learn from the, the successes of that. Um, there's another example that we talked about yesterday, which was smoking and smoking cessation and the identifiable risk of smoking causes cancer and direct link and other, other uh, pulmonary diseases that surgeons were involved in uh, advocating for change way back in the 60s. And I think that if we approach gun violence as a threat to health, and put it in the daily language of our patient interactions, I think will make a big impact going forward in this very sensitive topic. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So we usually end our recordings with uh, take home messages for our listeners, but we're gonna try to change things up a bit this time. And we wanna end with a call for action. How can our listeners get involved today to improve the situation with gun violence and firearm injury prevention? I think uh, we should take examples from past um, advocates. I think that we are well positioned to uh, give opinions about um, 
preventing injuries in many ways. We have done this successfully, and I think that um, our patients um, look to us for guidance. Our ability to care for patients shouldn't end at the door of the hospital. And like we have impacted all, a lot of other social determinants of health um, and standing up for uh, food insecurities and, and uh, access to health care, I think this too uh, can be uh, effectively changed if we speak up against violence, speak out against gun um, uh, culture that is dangerous, uh, partner with responsible gun owners to, to, to make uh, the environment for children safer, uh, address suicide risk in trying to identify um, imminent risk and how we can uh, prevent injuries from occurring. Um, because as you know, what we were taught in medical school has changed. And I think that educating ourselves to those changes will make us better spokespeople. But I think the most important thing, and I'll leave you with this, is that we have to show up. Our patients, our patients um, will benefit by our activity. And if we don't show up to this conversation, um, I suspect that we'll be dealing with this for many, many years. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for your time and for your insights into this very important topic. I um, appreciate all the work that you and the rest of the uh, Center for Gun Violence Prevention is doing. Um, and continue to look forward to uh, your further work and uh, we'll be trying to help out in any way that we can. And I appreciate you and your interest and uh, eventually the torch is going to be passed from my generation to your generation and I'm excited to see what you do to make it better. We'll try to uh, uphold your legacy. <laughs> legacy. <laughs> no, really, guys, it's really remarkable that you're interested in doing this, and I think that this is uh, motivational for others to, to see. I think it's great. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Hi, it's Ian Mitchell. I'm here to talk with Captain Christopher Marenko on his award-winning research study involving military trauma and the SIPA score. Chris, can you tell us about your study? Uh, so, first off, thank you very much uh, for having me. Um, so, what we uh, desired to look at is, you know, the triage of pediatric uh, trauma in war zones uh, can be very challenging. Um, often resources and staff uh, are quite limited. Um, so we wanted to see if uh, we could potentially leverage uh, the shock index pediatric adjusted uh, to aid in triage decisions. Um, in order to do that, we wanted to first validate it uh, in a retrospective cohort of uh, uh, pediatric war zone trauma. Um, so uh, using uh, thresholds that were uh, previously established in the civilian pediatric trauma cohort, um, we looked back uh, at our uh, own pediatric, uh, or rather combat trauma registry from 2008 to 2015. Um, and we found uh, over 2,100 patients um, uh, that we included in our study. Um, and then uh, we classified each as either having a normal or an elevated SIPA. Um, and then based on those classifications, um, we evaluated the association with either a blood product, um, excuse me, blood product transfusion or uh, emergent surgery. Uh, and we found that uh, an elevated SIPA was significantly associated with both uh, on both univariate uh, and uh, multivariate analysis. 
um, and uh, comparing it to a single unified threshold for shock index like is used in the adult uh, population that the SIPA significantly uh, outperformed it. Uh, so I think uh, going forward um, we just want to uh, uh, see uh, whether or not uh, SIPA would have value uh, in uh, pediatric war zone uh, trauma triage. Do you feel there may be potentially a role for looking at this research as well in the civilian population as well as in the military population? Yeah, I think uh, one of the next steps um, is trying to uh, perform a matched analysis between the military and civilian pediatric trauma cohorts. Obviously, there's significant differences, particularly the predominance of blast injury uh, in the um, war zone trauma cohort, uh, but I think that uh, it makes sense as a next step. Well, Christopher, thank you for talking with us, and I'm sure our members and East members will look forward to seeing your uh, data coming out in Journal of Trauma. Thank you. Hi, this is Alex. I'm here with Dr. Nathan Cooperman, uh, who's the Professor of Emergency Medicine and Pediatrics at uh, UC Davis Health. Um, he's also the Bo Thomas Brofelt Endowed Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine there, and a Principal Investigator for the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, or PCARN. Dr. Cooperman, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Alex. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Um, so for our listeners who may not be familiar with exactly what PCARN is, uh, could you just kind of give a, a brief overview of uh, what you guys are doing and uh, and how you established it? Sure. So. Um, uh, PCARN stands for the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. It's a research network funded by the Emergency Medical Services for Children program of HRSA, or the Health Resources Service Administration. And it's a research network in which uh, we study acute illnesses and injuries in children, both from prevention all through to rehabilitation. We're not focused on any particular disease process. We will study uh, anything from acute medical illnesses to acute traumatic illnesses, and we tend to follow, we establish a prioritization uh, in a, um, a sort of a semi-Delphi method a number of years ago, and we tend to follow our priority list. But our interest really is in all different forms of acute illnesses and injuries in children. Awesome. Well, um, you guys kind of gave a, or you gave an overview of some of the major studies that uh, that group has accomplished at your talk. Um, one of them that I uh, noted was the role of uh, when to get a CT head versus observation in kids who come in with head trauma. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and that tool that was developed from that study? Sure. So let me just uh, take one quick step back, Alex, and say that, um, again, we started in 2001, and uh, we started very humbly with uh, smaller studies as we were getting our uh, our bearings straight. And um, but what our first really big impact trial, uh, and we have published um, uh, a number of studies in very high impact journals such as New England Journal and Lancet and JAMA. And just to give you a, a general sense, we have more than a hundred million dollars in grant funding that we've garnered over the last 18 years and more than 150 publications. And the first big publication was actually on acute respiratory illness. It was a randomized trial of steroids in bronchiolitis. That kind of was our big hitter first off uh, in 2007. Uh, but we have been studying trauma um, for the last 15 years because pediatric trauma, as you know, is uh, 
one of the most important causes of morbidity and mortality in children in the United States, and it's been understudied. So the issue that we took on with the head injury study uh, was the notion that about half of children with um, traumatic brain injuries actually present with uh, minimal or minor signs, with GCS scores of 14 or 15, and we did not know which of these children are at high risk of developing or of having brain injuries and more, imper- more importantly, clinically important brain injuries. So we thought that we would create uh, what, what is called a clinical prediction rule to identify amongst those children with minor blunt head trauma, which is defined by GCS scores of 14 or 15, which are those factors that are associated with clinically important brain injuries. And uh, importantly, we just so you know, we define that by a consensus group of many investigators as death from TBI, neurosurgery, intubation for 24 hours or longer, or the need for hospitalization for two or more nights for ongoing symptoms of traumatic brain injury in association with a positive CT. So uh, these are, by consensus, clinically important injuries. And what we did is we enrolled uh, approximately 42,000 children prospectively with uh, a minor head trauma defined as I described, GCS 14 or 15, and we identified factors that were associated with clinically important traumatic brain injury. Importantly, we segregated between children younger than two years and those older than two years because preverbal children uh, have different uh, risk factors, and of course, they're nonverbal, they're preverbal, so uh, difficult to assess. And we came up with two different rules, one rule for uh, for each age group, uh, and uh, the bottom line for both of these rules is that if you don't have any of these risk factors, your risk of traumatic brain injury is extremely, extremely low, and you do not need to get a CT scan. Um, importantly, uh, there was a, out of the six risk factors, there was two of them which were higher risk for which you likely should get a CT scan, but for the other four risk factors, the presence of one of them does not mean you need a CT scan necessarily, but you can observe the child in the emergency department for a period of hours, and if they're well, you can obviate the CT. So for the young children, the six factors uh, are, uh, and by the way, between those two rules, that is one for children younger than two and the other for two and older, three of the factors were similar and three were different. But for the young age group, younger than two, the factors were altered mental status, um, uh, having a scalp hematoma uh, that is either occipital, parietal, or temporal in location, a history of loss of consciousness of five seconds or greater, a severe mechanism of injury, a palpable skull fracture, or um, not acting normally per the parent. And if they have none of those risk factors, uh, the risk of a traumatic, uh, a clinically important brain injury is extremely unlikely, less than one in several thousand, and therefore a CT scan uh, can be obviated in the vast majority of cases. And I mention that only because um, if you suspect child abuse, then you should go ahead with CT scans because the history that the guardian is going to provide you is notoriously uh, misleading. Uh, and the other thing I was going to mention, there's 
two uh, risk factors that are higher risk factors in that uh, group, age group, which are uh, altered mental status, which is uh, either having a GCS score of 14 or being slow to respond or uh, somehow having any other signs of alteration in mental status and um, having a, um, a palpable skull fracture. If you have either of those factors, then the risk of a clinically important uh, brain injury is about 1 in 25, and you should get the scan. But that's only about 15% of the patients. For the rest of the patients that have one of the other factors, such as a loss of consciousness or a mechanism of injury or a scalp hematoma, observation in the emergency department for a period of, uh, of hours without CT scan is usually just fine. And then finally, I'll just say for the older age group, uh, similarly, there are six risk factors, and I'll just say that um, uh, altered, uh, altered mental status, history of loss of consciousness, and severe mechanisms of injury are also factors there, but the other factors for that group is um, history of vomiting, clinical signs of a basal skull fracture, or a severe headache. And again, if you have none of those factors, CT scans can be obviated. Yeah, and just the ubiquity or importance of that tool is highlighted. I think the first thing that comes up for me, at least when I Google PCARN, is the MD calc link to that algorithm. Um, so our right. listeners, if, uh, if you uh, are interested in kind of uh, seeing this a little bit further or, or using it for your patient, Googling PCARN uh, will get you that link to that MD calc tool. And let me just mention one quick thing, Alex, with that, is that sites that have implemented this rule, either using the MD-Calc tool, some have embedded it, the rule in their electronic health record, sites that have actively implemented the rule um, have greatly reduced their CT scan rate. So the active implementation, using of tools like MD-Calc are very helpful in uh, reducing unnecessary CT scans in this population. And that's really great work. Thank you for that. Um, another important series of studies was related to abdominal trauma. Uh, can you describe what clinical factors you guys found helped to determine which patients would benefit from a CT? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this, uh, the study that uh, uh, that we conducted uh, after the head injury one was a very similar uh, decision rule for for children with intra-abdominal or actually torso injury, and we enrolled 12,000 children with uh, signs of torso injury, and we identified based on, here it was a rule based on history and physical examination, which factors were associated with clinically important intra-abdominal injury, similar to the TBI rule. Here we're looking for injuries that need operation, blood transfusion, embolization to stop bleeding, etc. We enrolled 2,000 uh, patients, I'm sorry, 12,000 patients, uh, and there were seven factors that we identified. And that um, these factors were uh, evidence of abdominal wall trauma or a seatbelt sign, um, a GCS score below 14, signs of uh, abdominal tenderness on examination, uh, evidence of thoracic wall trauma, complaints of abdominal pain, decreased breath sounds, and vomiting. Again, if you have none of these, which is a substantial portion of the population, the risk of having a clinically important intra-abdominal injury was extremely low, less than you know one in a thousand. Uh, and similar to the TBI rule, having one of those factors doesn't necessarily mean you need a CT scan, but it gets you out of that low risk group 
uh, and you should consider other laboratory tests, observation, etc., or uh, or getting the CT scan. But again, the use of this rule uh, has substantially decreased CT scans in our uh, trauma population. That rule is currently being validated with a big NIH grant right now. Great. And then, obviously, if we aren't getting CT scans, one of the other options uh, would be a FAST. And I think one of the kind of offshoots from the main study was looking at FAST in children. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So we did a, uh, a sort of side analysis of FAST, but but we actually uh, received a grant from the EMSC program in HRSA to do a randomized trial of the FAST examination in children who are uh, hemodynamically stable after thoracic trauma. Really important to, to highlight that because if a child's hemodynamically unstable, we would consider the FAST uh, as standard of care because not only can you identify blood in the peritoneum, but you can identify pneumothorax or uh, pericardial effusions, etc. So in hemodynamically stable children, we enrolled about 900 uh, children randomized either to routine evaluation um, uh, with laboratory tests in your exam plus the FAST exam or the routine evaluation without the FAST exam. And our hypothesis was that the FAST exam would decrease CT scan use. But in this randomized trial, uh, we found that CT scan use was not decreased, uh, and, and the two groups were otherwise very similar with regard to intra-abdominal injury, etc. However, what we did find is that clinicians in the FAST arm, after they performed the FAST, there was a substantial percentage of children that they felt were at very low risk of having intra-abdominal injury. Unfortunately, they still CT scanned a number of those patients, and none of those patients uh, had intra-abdominal injury. So although we concluded that the FAST exam in this, that was a single center uh, study, did not alter CT scan rates, it did lower, appropriately lower the suspicion of injury in a large subset of uh, children. So perhaps this was a bit of a failure of translation of the results into practice. Fortunately, uh, we have submitted a grant application, again in PCARN, to do a six-site randomized trial, again now to really look closer at subgroups, because as you were implying at the, uh, with your very first question, when we looked at the big PCARN decision rule study on intra-abdominal injury, we had done a sub-analysis that we found that if the clinician's suspicion of intra-abdominal injury at the start was between 1% and 10%, if they got the FAST examination and it was negative compared to uh, clinicians that did not use the FAST examination, CT scan rates were significantly lower. Uh, and that's what led to the randomized trial. So I think the jury is still out. Uh, we suspect that there are a subset of children who will benefit from the FAST. And my guess, it's children who have a low prior probability risk of intra-abdominal injury, and the clinician is still looking for one extra piece of information to convince him or her to not perform the CT scan. And that's what we're going to be looking for in this multi-center trial um, once we get the grant funded. Well, we'll definitely be looking forward to those results as well. Um, Dr. Cooperman, thank you very much for your time. I know you, you got to run, but uh, thank you for all the work that you and 
the PECON group have been doing for trauma and for taking the time to kind of go over some of those results with us today. Hey, Alex, thanks. It's a pleasure to chat with you and happy to discuss uh, trauma with you anytime. One thing I'll just mention uh, for those uh, listeners that are uh, particularly interested in PCARM-related uh, and pediatric trauma, we are in the middle of a, another large decision rule study that, uh, with regard to C-spine injuries. That is, uh, we're trying to create a decision rule that can be used in the pre-hospital setting to identify children who don't need a C-spine collar or C-spine immobilization uh, in the field and identify those children in the ED who do not need imaging of their C-spine because just like for intra-abdominal, uh, that is for abdominal trauma and mild head trauma, there are too many children being imaged and we are trying to focus in on those that really need it and trying to eliminate uh, imaging for those that don't. So stay tuned for those results. That's an ongoing NIH-funded trial. Uh, we're probably two-thirds of the way done, and uh, we'll happy to be to discuss those results with you when those are out. Yeah, we'll definitely look forward to that. Hi, this is Ian. I'm here with Rachel Cockett from the University of California, San Francisco, who's been here talking about BCVI screening with our PTS members. Hi, Rachel. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, can you talk to us about what the real summary of your talk is? What's the take-home message for our members and for East? Yeah, so I think um, one of the important take-home messages is that although we've long thought that kids should be screened under the same criteria as adults, there's some new screening criteria that's been developed over the last few years in pediatric-specific patients called the McGovern score, which actually has shown to be superior to our adult screening criteria specifically to find these injuries for children. So most of us are um, encouraging centers that take care of kids to adopt those criteria for screening the children. One thing I did notice uh, in some of your topics, they talked about 64 slice scanners and the number of scanners being important. For more rural facilities, that may be an issue. Would you consider that uh, as these get wider adopted, that that may affect transfer rates or uh, for the screening for these injuries? So it's interesting. Um, although we think that 64 slice is superior, um, most of the literature shows that the advantage you get over a 16 slice CT scan for this is relatively small. So in most of our rural centers that have a 16 slice CT scan, that's probably still adequate in this day and age to screen. And where do you see the future going for this, both on the adult side and on the pediatric side? So I think one of the things that we've talked about is trying to define better um, the therapeutic, once we find these, what um, should we give patients aspirin or heparin? Um, that's been a long-standing controversy, which is better. It's pretty clear at this point they're probably equivalent for outcomes. But what becomes more controversial is what do you do with the patient who has a brain injury or a severe brain injury or a spinal cord injury that has an associated hemorrhage with it? And so there's been a growth in the literature. There's four fairly well-done papers in the adult patient population that has shown that um, it's actually safe to treat those folks after a stable um, CT scan that shows no progression. And so I think what we we'll start to see is some um, more clarification around we should treat those patients as well early and often. And for those members out there listening, uh, I want to emphasize the audible gasp in the room when Dr. Calcutt suggested that we could start giving heparin and aspirin to patients with uh, hemorrhagic issues. I think that many of our pediatric neurosurgical colleagues and others, uh, ICU may be somewhat reticent initially to follow those guidelines, but are you following that at your institution? We do. So um, we, of course, get the sign-off of our neurosurgeons who are fairly progressive, but we typically are able to start within 12 to 24 hours of a stable head 
OCT in our adult and pediatric population. We've had no anecdotally progression of um, any injuries uh, with regards that we felt could um, directly be attributed to that. I will say that about five to six percent of all patients with these traumatic neurologic injuries that have a hemorrhage component will progress, but when you compare those on aspirin or heparin to those not on aspirin or heparin, the progression rate is also five percent. So there's no statistically significant difference. So it's really felt to be more about the injury rather than the therapeutic. And some of this was driven by literature that actually comes out in the um, adult post-cardiac surgery patient population who need to be um, anticoagulated because they have a mechanical valve and they also have a head injury. And so those patients have been anticoagulated early on with relatively few progressions shown in the literature. So that's where the etiology of trying to look at this and push the envelope came from. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to hearing much more from you in the future. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. This is Alex Kassar, and I'm here with Dr. Tony Escobar, Jr., who's the Medical Director of Pediatric Surgery and Trauma at Mary Bridge Children's Hospital in Tacoma, Washington, and a Clinical Associate Professor of Surgery at University of Washington. And he just gave us a talk on child abuse and guidelines and all of management strategies surrounding it. Dr. Escobar, can you tell us a little bit about what just went on? Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate this. Um, so we had the opportunity to put together a panel for the Pediatric Trauma Society looking at the development of clinical screening guidelines for um, child physical abuse as well as um, understanding the role of our teammates, including child abuse pediatricians, CPS, social work, and law enforcement. And finally, um, learning how to develop and implement a process improvement program around the implementation of a clinical screening guideline for child abuse. Awesome. So what were some of the recommendations uh, the group found uh, regarding specific populations or injuries that were relevant and required special attention or care? Some of the highlights um, that we presented included the need for the development of a screen. This is now mandated by the American College of Surgeons in the optimal resources for the care of the injured patient, as well as for the optimal resources for children's surgery. Um, and although we have the opportunity to interpret those requirements, um, one of the things that we know is that we need to implement a screening guideline. So in regards to that, I presented today some work that was done through the Pediatric Trauma Society Guidelines Committee looking at seven different areas um, that are high risk for association with child physical abuse. Um, those areas included bruising, abdominal injuries, abusive head trauma, um, skeletal injuries, um, isolated historical factors, um, oral injuries and burns. <clears throat> we um, also discussed the upcoming um, newly published American College of Surgeons TQIP clinical best practice guideline for child abuse, elder abuse, and intimate partner violence um, that will be available to all trauma centers. Um, moving beyond the development of a screening guideline, we also discussed the role of a healthcare provider in the screening and management of uh, child physical abuse and their role as a mandatory reporter. And although there are um, subtle differences across the states, all 50 states and the District of Columbia require that healthcare providers report suspected child abuse. 
what is important to note for the listeners is that the person who suspects child abuse is the person that needs to make the referral to CPS. Finally, um, we discussed the implementation of a process improvement program, the e-codes associated with entry into the registry, and recommendations of which codes needed to be placed in which fields. Awesome. Well, thank you for all your work and for being such a strong advocate uh, for kids. And we'll see you around. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.